My mother was a woman of tremendous integrity. My mother was curious, protective, unflappable, loyal, complicated, powerful, honest, lyrical. She is devoted, resilient, dazzling, giving, extraordinary. Let me ask you this, Erin. Who do you believe your mother is? I believe that my mother is the messenger of God. I believe that she's a prophet. Prophet comes from the Greek word meaning messenger. Mm -hmm. This is Our Mothers Ourselves, and I'm your host, Katie Hafner. Most of us learn about cults and extreme religions from what we read in the news or see in movies and Netflix series. But what if that was your real life? Erin Prophet's mother, Elizabeth Clare Prophet, was the leader of the Church Universal and Triumphant, which at its peak had 50,000 members worldwide. Elizabeth Clare Prophet, even at one point in 1989, predicted that a nuclear attack was imminent and led many of her followers down into an elaborate survival bunker in Montana. She died in 2009 at the age of 70. Her daughter, Erin Prophet, is a visiting assistant professor in the Department of Religion at the University of Florida in Gainesville, and her memoir, Prophet's Daughter was published in 2010. I spoke with Erin recently about her childhood and where her religious views stand now, and even about the time Oprah interviewed her about her extraordinary mother. Erin Prophet, I would like to thank you so much for coming on to Our Mothers Ourselves to talk to me about your very interesting mother. Thank you, Katie. I'm always happy to talk about my mother. Yeah, I'm really excited about this because I just finished uh, reading your book and you had kind of a a very different childhood from what many of us had. I guess so. I mean, in many ways, it was it was extraordinary, but there were also very ordinary parts of it. And that's, you know, sort of the 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 seldom seen parts of my mother's life that I tried mm-hmm. to bring out a little bit, but they, they always get overshadowed by the big picture. You know? Right. Well, I think what we'd like to do is go through the big picture because the big sweep of her life is super interesting and also very tragic, but also the more ordinary ways in which she was a mother to her kids. So let's start at the beginning with your mom's childhood, where she was born, who her parents were, and when she was born. Sure. So my mother was born in Red Bank, New Jersey. Her parents were both immigrants. Her mother had been a governess to wealthy New York families and had met my grandfather, who was from Germany and then decided to move to New Jersey to raise a family. I mean, they were both interested in what you might call alternative spirituality, or of course, my my grandmother was. And uh, so my my grandfather was just sort of a straight up Lutheran, but didn't go to church. So your mother was born in what year? In 1939. And she had a pretty in many ways, I would say an idyllic childhood. Once the war was over, her parents settled down in, the, in this town. Her father built yachts for the pleasure boating crowd. She was sort of a, an only child, and they raised her. Neither one of them went to church regularly, but my grandmother was interested in alternative spirituality, sort of believed in reincarnation, 
And so my mother had these religious or spiritual inclinations from an early age, and she found the Christian Science Church. She was also childhood epileptic. So I think that's part of what drew her to Christian Science. She thought that she was able to control her seizures through her prayers. And you describe a kind of harrowing incident when she was nine years old and and had a seizure that put her in real danger physical danger. So she was playing on the sort of, I guess, the cellar doors of her house running up and down. And there was a a porthole in one of the doors that had come from a ship and she ran through it and it cracked and her leg went through and she pulled it out. Her leg was lacerated and she needed stitches. She had lost consciousness, came to, found herself bleeding and, you know, again, believed that her prayers and her mental attitude were able to somehow heal or save her leg, which at one point they thought might have to be amputated. And how did she meet your father? So my father had started group at the time. It wasn't supposed to be a church. It was called the Summit Lighthouse. And he was basically giving what most people would probably call channeled messages from uh, divine beings, and he would travel to different cities. And my mother was living in Boston at the time. She was married to someone she'd met in the Christian Science Church, and she heard that he was coming. You know, she'd been reading books about these divine beings known as ascended masters that were believed to be able to communicate through people that were called messengers. So my father was called a messenger, and my mother went to see him speak, and she was she described herself as having been transported and having had a vision of her future life to sort of save people and inspire people. And so she told him she wanted to learn how to do what he did. And she left her husband, moved to Washington, D.C., began working with him. And, and together they built this Summit Lighthouse into a fairly influential new age group in the 70s and 80s. And how old was he when they got together? So they had about a 20-year age difference. Uh, He was born in 1918, and she was born in 39. So Mm -hmm. it was a little bit of a scandal for them to get married at the time, especially because the group that they were involved with was sort of an anti-sex, anti-procreation group that was called the I Am Religious Activity And um, they believed that everyone was going to be transformed into some kind of divine being at the end of their lives, and therefore no one would have to procreate anymore. (laughs) So when they went ahead and decided to have four children, (laughs) you know, it was seen as sort of their, they, they shifted the messages a little bit towards the idea that people were somehow meant to bring in some new age on earth and that all of the children who were being born in the 1970s and 60, late 60s when, when I was born were, were in their movement were going to be part of this sort of spiritual awakening. And what year were you born? I was born in 1966 and by that time they had moved to Colorado Springs where they had bought a large mansion at the time it was in it well about 10,000 square feet and they had 
70 or 80 people living in this house. And so we were really? sort of this, yeah. <laughs> they're, they're, fo- they're followers. Yeah. And it was a really interesting way to grow up. That's where I lived for the first seven years of my life. And for you, was this just normal? This is life? This is This is childhood? Well, yes. I mean, we were always treated as, you know, these special new age children that were going to ch- change the world. And so, you know, we did we did go to normal schools or you know schools with other children who are not in our church for a few years but then my mother started her own school for us so we did live in a bubble i mean but eventually i did go to university i went to usc when we eventually moved to los angeles and so it was a challenge learning how to relate to people my own age um, right and and did you from a very early age understand what your mother was doing? Well, I I understood that everyone had a great deal of respect for my parents that their space had to be respected so we weren't really allowed to go and bother them at any time because they might be, you know, communicating with divine beings and so part, we had, part of part <laughs> of their job as a messenger. Or... Right, right, but I really think the reason people were drawn to them was that they sort of had a new take on traditional religions. There were many people who'd grown up Catholic or in some kind of Protestantism. We had a number of Jews, we had Hindus, and my parents thought that they had the answers. But one of the things I've come to realize is that belief system can be liberating for some people and confining for others. So, so back to you as a through your child's eyes when you looked at your mother, was your first thought that's my mother, or was your first thought that's? I, I mean, what's confusing to a kid is when everyone else is calling her mother because that's what the <laughs> church followers called her. Yeah. So I learned from an early age that she was not only my mother; she was sort of everyone's mother. So actually, I called her mommy. I called her mommy all the way into adulthood, because that was sort of the name that I could only call her. And so everyone else called her mother. And so we certainly had to compete for her attention. I mean, she was extremely proud of us. She invested a lot of energy and attention into our education. You know, But she was also on the road a lot. She traveled, giving lectures. Now she would take us with her when we weren't in school or sometimes we'd take to be taken out of school i went to africa with her i went to india with her wow so um, this is after your dad died mm-hmm. yeah. and he died he died suddenly right so he had a stroke in 1973 and mm-hmm. he was at that time declared to be an ascended master so after that our mother just became much more busy she became a higher profile figure so she was giving interviews to the press. Did she take you on these trips because she wanted to have her kids with her or because you had a role to play? I think that we were sort of in training. I think that she thought that we we were learning the family business, so to speak. She definitely wanted one or more of us to learn to be messengers like she was and like our father had been. And so we would help out with some small jobs on these trips and and just observe her. In fact, when I was 10 or 11, I said, you know, I really want to spend more time with you. She said, if you want to spend time with me, watch me work, you know, and so I would just sit in her office and 
take notes and doodle and things, you know. <laughs> and did you think this is really just amazing what she's doing and I want to do this too? I had a great deal of admiration for her and I still do. I mean, she was able to stand up for hours and and speak, you know, and inspire people. And I thought that that was pretty uh, incredible. And, you know, she would always say, oh, that was, it's not me, it's God doing it, you know, but you know, I consider myself an agnostic today and I'm, I'm a scholar of religion. I've got my PhD in religious studies. So <laughs> I couldn't get away from religion. Yeah, I I want to get to that. I, I'd like to stick with when you were at, at when you were very much in the belief system and I'm still having trouble if you were to, you know, kind of give an elevator pitch of what the religion <laughs> was. So Church Universal and Triumphant teaches that everyone can become a divine being like Jesus or Buddha. And it teaches a variety of techniques, many of them involving some kind of high-speed prayer, which is called decrees. They also use singing, meditation, or doing good works, other things like balancing karma. So they combine Eastern and Western scriptures and ideas. I mean, I can see the appeal. And so what kind of people did it attract? And at its peak, how many church members were there? It was mostly in the United States, largely white, but there were some blacks and Asians. They at one time had groups in every major city in the world, and I think we calculated perhaps about 50,000 members. I mean, it wasn't huge. It wasn't as large as some of the other sort of non-mainstream religions that are out there. Mm -hmm. But it was, it was pretty visible because during the 1980s, my mother had a public access cable television show that was aired on a lot of stations that would sort of show her giving her sermons and dictations. And how old were you when you moved to California? So we moved to California after my father died. I was about eight and we eventually purchased this large property in the Santa Monica Mountains that was just a really fun place to grow up. I mean, it had hills, it had a lake, it had, <laughs> you know, horses. What was it, your daily life like? Did your mom cook at all? Or how, what did it look like? <laughs> so my mother, she had her, you know, she had four children uh, with my father. And our lives were organized very well. But there were a number of her followers that were called staff members of the church and they would take care of us. So she would sort of pop into our lives and have dinner with us or make a salad, or make some soup, you know, and then go off to, to work. I mean, the one thing about her is that she was an incredibly hard worker. I mean, I don't think she slept more than five or six hours a night and she would mm. get up at five and start writing. And so even when we were in the same house with her, we didn't spend a lot of time with her. Sometimes she would watch movies with us. We would go to movies. She actually really liked James Bond movies, Eddie oh, Murphy movies. <laughs> really? I wonder. Yeah. Interesting. So she had that side to her. Right. Which... And she liked to laugh. Um, she did. Okay. So she wasn't all seriousness and dictating and decreeing and messengering. <laughs> 
No, I mean, she had loved to dance to big band music in high school. She was a really good dancer. In our church, we didn't believe that popular music was okay. So she had us doing square dancing, waltzing, and foxtrots. Those were the three approved dances that we really? could do. Really? So, uh, but she could have changed the rules. Well, that's true. But I mean, I think one of the things, first of all, it was my father and the people who had been in this IM group who sort of set the rules up to begin with, right? So, I mean, it would be like if the Pope suddenly came in and said, okay, everybody, you can all get divorced and use contraception. You know, some right. people would resist I it. I see, <laughs> so, I see, I see. So right, she right, would right. sometimes want to break her own rules a little bit, like we would have drink some wine, but, you know, we weren't oh, so have alcohol. No alcohol, uh-huh. Right. Oh, interesting. Oh, so I can imagine her, I mean, so if she was like, early 20s when she met your dad there's this 21 year difference Mm -hmm. she's probably got it Mm -hmm. sounds like she had a real i mean people who love to dance they Mm -hmm. have a real they have a real fun loving (laughs) side to them yes and my guess is that she kind of missed that i mean her given name Mm -hmm. was elizabeth but she was she was betty right betty claire (laughs) when she was growing up Right. Her parents called her Betty Claire. Everyone called her Betty Claire until she met my father. And he told her her name was Elizabeth. They didn't use nicknames in our church. So and so she felt that was her real identity. But I think there was always some Betty back in there. Yeah, the Betty, the Betty. Betty. Wow, that's interesting. Okay, so she gave all that up. She gave up the dancing. She so but it sounds like she also had that in her. But then in the back of all of it, she knew she had these blackouts. So that was always, that's a a silent terror for her, I'm sure, especially having fallen and gotten so badly injured during a seizure when she was so little. And so she sounds like she was very complicated. Mm -hmm. You know, as I grew older, she would tell my brother and myself that we were you know, we were as close as her skin, like we were her confidants. And, mm. you know, because she didn't have very many actual friends, you know, people were either her followers, or they were members of the public. Mm-hmm. So she, she remarried after your dad died. Mm-hmm. And pretty, pretty quickly. That's correct. Yes. I mean, she married, she was married within eight months of my father mm. dying. To, to one of her followers? Yeah, so yes, they had a little bit of a stormy marriage and that ended in a lawsuit <laughs> and divorce. Oh, dear. I don't know if it was related, but she had a hard time sleeping, so she would often get up in the middle of the night and have someone drive her around in a mobile home until she fell asleep. And for her, her work was a 24-7 proposition, and right. she was constantly waking up in the night and calling staff members about various projects. And so, you know, she wanted to be a good mother. I think she truly did. And she would sort of give us these elaborate birthday parties as if to say, you know, I really do love you. I really do care about you. <laughs> and, right. <laughs> and it and it sounds like she really wanted to give you material comforts as well. And how did how was the church funded? How did she give you those material comforts? Well, so the church, like as with many churches, 
took donations, passed collection plates. But people also who supported her and cared about her work, sometimes they would just give her cash, you know, and she would have cash. I don't think it was really all accounted for because, you know, then she could spend it on, on her own personal needs and her children. And we lived in properties that were owned by the church. So in 1981, the church bought a 12,000 acre ranch from Malcolm Forbes, which was bordered on Yellowstone Park. And in the beginning, this ranch was supposed to be a place to have retreats, to hold summer conferences, a place for people to go for some kind of spiritual refreshment. But I think that there was probably always a sense that they saw it as a place to go if civilization collapsed. And there was always some kind of element of apocalypticism in my parents' thought. They believed that, you know, people's karma, the karma of the world could become exceedingly bad and then God would punish the cities and therefore it would be a good idea to be out of the cities. And she basically told all of her followers to move away from the coasts of the United States, both the East and the West Coast. So all because of your mother's vision of an apocalypse coming, people upped and moved. Well, my mother's prophecies became much more specific in the late 80s. And she began to describe this vision of the Four Horsemen. She told everyone there was going to be an economic collapse, that that would be followed by a war and then they would be followed by natural disasters. And that was supposed to happen originally in late 1989, early 1990. Mm-hmm. And by this time you were, you were home from college, you were working for her. What was mm-hmm. your job? I helped her out with her publications and her, you know, working on lectures, but I was also in training to be a, become a messenger like she was. So I was trying to sort of see the same visions that she was seeing and help her to give new and updated visions and new messages from from masters. And I was trying very hard. (laughs) I hope you don't mind. I went and I found the the Oprah interview. Mm -hmm. um, And I wanted to play a little bit of that. Oprah uh, turns to you, it's kind of poignant, and asks you a question. So let's just see if I can get it to play. Let me ask you this, Erin. Who do you believe your mother is? I believe that my mother is the messenger of God. I believe that she's a prophet. Prophet comes from the Greek word meaning messenger. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of like an Old Testament prophet to us. Do you believe that she is divine? No, we believe that she's a human being like everybody else. She makes mistakes. She admits she makes mistakes. She's here to work out the problem of being just the way everyone else is. And uh, she's not infallible, but we believe she has a special gift. Mm -hmm. She is that was sort of, that was right before this whole shelter incident. And I mean, even just to call it an incident seems to trivialize it because you, everybody moved lock, stock, barrel, and family. How many people moved into this basically huge complex of bunkers in Montana? Well, at the time the shelter episode happened, I believed that we definitely were in touch with God and divine beings that were that basically wanted us to stay safe so that we could preserve our culture so that it would continue into this new age that was going to come after all the cataclysm. So 
So there were several thousand people who followed up on my mother's prophecies. I mean, there were many other people that did not build shelters or move to Montana or some other location away from the coast. <laughs> but we had two drills and we, she let the upper echelons of the church know by the second drill that she thought that that was when it was really going to happen, if it was going to happen at all. And which date was, what was that date? And that was on the Ides of March, March 15, 1990. So we all went underground that day, all of us in the, in the main ranch shelter, the 800-person shelter. And we had we had animals underground and we had a whole underground barn. And, you know, we were really prepared for this. We had put a lot of money into it. And that was one of the things that eventually disillusioned me was that I felt that God, if there were a God, wouldn't have allowed us to waste so much of our money on this endeavor. But so I think how that, long, let me ask you this. How long were you guys down there? Right. Well, we were. We really never spent more than 24 hours in the shelter. We had two separate drills. One of them we went in at night, the other one we went in during the day. And so then you're, so, but you were only there for 24 hours. Right. And, and, and then we, we came out and everyone went back to their sort of temporary living space. I mean, people had come from all over the world to be there for this event. And people were sleeping three people to a small room, you know, or people were on cots on the floor and things like that. Just to back up, there was no nuclear war, no nuclear attack. Right. And so then did your mother, was she contrite? Was she, what was her reaction to this? She actually maintained for the rest of her life that there was going to be a war and that it was eventually going to happen. I mean, she must have had a tremendous magnetism and charisma and and was very persuasive to get people to up and move or build shelters where they lived. I'm just trying to get my mind around it. Well, she was definitely charismatic. She was definitely persuasive. And as I said, there was also this subculture that many of these people had come out of that sort of believed something similar was going to happen. Mm -hmm. So it was a combination of all of those, those factors. And I think she had felt driven by her relationship with God that she believed that she had. And I know some people would see something in the fact that she was an epileptic, you know, but she would come up with these messages that would seem fully formed and she would speak them very rapidly. So many people thought that because she could speak so fast and so well, that that must be a sign that it was divine. Mm. And then her, her seizures were kind of growing in severity, right? And frequency. Right. So, my mother was always pretty secretive about her epilepsy. I mean, she had, she had grown able to control when, the seizures that she was having as a child. And so she wasn't able to drive because she would, what she called, black out or just lose consciousness for a second or two, really just a second. And so she could be sitting there talking to you and then she would say, what did you just say? And she would say, I blacked out. But you, you wouldn't know to, to look at her what was happening. But then as she approached 
her 50s, she started to have the classic, what have been called grand mal or tonic-clonic seizures. And so those she had to, she could feel when one was coming on usually. So then she would just not go out in public or go to sleep, taken out of van. So she was able to control them like that for maybe seven or eight years, you know, before it just became so bad that she had to do something else. And it also seemed to be affecting her memory. Like we never knew exactly whether it was the epilepsy, the untreated seizures, or whether it was early onset Alzheimer's disease that actually caused her to lose her memory. But, you know, by the mid nineties, she was having just really obvious cognitive problems. So this would have been maybe five years after the shelter episode, you know, she was having just, she wouldn't have been able to function as an adult if she hadn't had all the, mm-hmm. all these helpers around her. I mean, she couldn't add up a column of figures. She couldn't oh. calculate a tip on a bill at a restaurant. Did you, was that around the time that you started to pull away from the church? Yeah. So I began, I stayed for a couple of years after the shelter episode because I really wanted to help get the church back on its feet. And I cared about it, and I cared about the people who had raised me, and I wanted the community in Montana to be a success. But eventually, my sort of mental um, chatter got too strong for me to stay there any longer, and I felt that I had to leave and go and figure out my life, myself, what I really wanted to do and be. What was her reaction she was she was fairly upset. I mean, I think she was very sad also because, you know, she really loved me and I loved her and she wanted this to work out. But, you know, I had wanted to go and get a job. And I think there was a point because I had announced in 97 that I was writing a book about her. And I think that really was threatening to her. There was one moment of real clarity where I had taken her for a walk in a park in Bozeman, Montana, where I was living at the time. And, you know, she just patted me on the back and she said, you know, Aaron, you write your books, you write your books, you know, and mm-hmm. like that was really, mm-hmm. you know, brought tears to my eyes because I knew that she had some misgivings about what I might write about her. So you know, I hope one day to write a true biography of her. I mean, my memoir was really just to try to help explain to myself and to people I met how apocalyptic events like the one that we went through could happen and to try to humanize her a little bit. I don't know if mm-hmm. I was successful at that. <laughs> right. No, yeah, I think you I think you did. So, you know, the the podcast is called Our Mothers Ourselves. And in your case, especially, I wanted to ask you how you see yourself in her and how she influenced the person you became. Well, I think that she was a passionate, creative woman and that she came into a restrictive belief system that she tried really hard to internalize and convey to other people. But I think that she was always struggling with herself and I've struggled myself with my own creativity as well as sexuality and with respect to religious traditions. So I feel that I understand her. I mean, if someone were to ask me you know, for one adjective to talk about her, I I would choose the word driven because 
she was driven to her work and to do what she thought was helping people. But I, I wouldn't be the person I am today without her at all. Mm-hmm. Especially going into religious studies. Right. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, on that note, thank you so much, Erin, for spending so much time talking to me about her. You're welcome. Thank you for this opportunity to tell my story and my mother's story. That's it this week for Our Mothers Ourselves. Our theme music is composed and performed by Andrea Perry. Paula Manchin is our artist-in-residence. Ilana Nevins does our social media. And Claire Trageser is the show's producer. Please contribute the word that best describes your mother to the Mother Word Cloud at OurMothersOurselves.com. Our Mothers Ourselves is a production of Odredex Studios in San Francisco, and I'm your host, Katie Hafner. <laughs> <laughs>